0: We're on we're on
1: we're again. on the stream
0: I have a note the stream is live the stream is indeed live um, yeah I had a successful run of bird cheese
1: uh, you sent me a photo which I uh, unfortunately I in my in my haste to get out the menu I forgot to put that photo into our post so our esteemed listener and viewership cannot enjoy the visual deliciousness of that of that po- of that will, of that will, cheese uh, how did
0: it come out it was uh, absolutely spectacular if i may say so myself um, you may say so yourself i then i will say so it was absolutely spectacular i mean it's just i think that there's no way to describe the satisfaction of producing something that seems to be so intricate and so technical and that in my mind in any way um, entails the wisdom of very, very ancient, very long-bearded French cheesemakers hanging out in caves with their dogs uh, and 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 long sort of staffs uh, and just kind of getting out of, of your fridge and seeing it evolve over days. I mean, it's just, there is a labor of love element to it, but I think that there is also a kind of crazy science experiment as we used to do when we were children so it was it was just just spectacular and it tastes amazing so anyway i encourage everybody listening to us to actually get into cheese making which for me goes with yogurt making fear making make make. i'm doing a lot of those things i think (laughs) Um, for me certain sort of hands-on kind of activities
1: um, Wonderful, yeah. I, uh, you know, me and my fermentations. I mean, last night when I, I, I was, I've been, up, I've been on the road traversing the Schland for the last few weeks, enjoying all the many gifts that German culture, in all of its forms, has to give us. Uh, so I was very happy to be home last night to be cooking for myself and cooking in my kitchen with the food I like to eat, um, and made use of all those weeks I was away and some weeks before that. I've been fermenting lemons. Uh, oh. And I threw those, I threw some lemons into the broccoli that I made, and it was spectacular.
0: I think it's really just um there is something has has happened, obviously. I mean, I think we're just really one of trend. I mean, what we've seen ourselves is part of a very broad trend of you know, returning to, I mean, from our parents' days of sort of everything would be acquired in a supermarket, yeah. To actually having this kind of eye you know, I, I blame a lot of the movie, iPhone, I this, I that. I mean, all of a sudden actually producing these things ourselves in our kitchens and our yards, and I, I, I think we are rediscovering. I think the joys and the satisfaction and the tribulations of that, obviously, as well, because things go bad. Except you
1: and I are you and I are doing it wrong because we're not putting our 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 uh, results on Instagram. At least I'm that's not. True.
0: I, I'm certainly not, I mean, every once in a while, I remember I have an Instagram account and I just plug in the stuff. Um, but I think it's a much more, for me, it's a much more private pleasure. I mean, for me, it has a lot less to do with really, you know, exhibiting exhibiting the product of my work as with the the sheer kind of magic of seeing these things like pop up on my on my table, right? Or like emerge from my fridge or like my garden which you can kind of see here uh, directly. I mean, you're seeing a fig, actually, that and, and yeah. it gives. And, and there is something really just breathtaking about these processes, kind of, especially when you get older, I think that, you know, time slows down and or maybe it speeds up, actually. I mean, we get older and time speeds up. We get older quicker. And you we see, we see these things that, as a kid, for me, used to take... Forever, and you just wanted to be there already. And now, it's sort of, there is this all, all this observational vintage points in between, where I see like the bud mm-hmm. turning. So I enjoy that greatly, and I have the intuition that a lot of people are sort of going down that road as well. Anyway, yeah, I mean, it touches.
1: We talked about it last. We talked a little bit about last week. Uh, the cyclical nature of things. You know, things come, fall uh, out of fashion, mm-hmm. then come back into fashion, and then you know reactions and reactions to those reactions so we're definitely in 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 some area of that of that cycle
0: when it comes to very much hands-on making of things and and we're part of the larger family of people rediscovering that right i mean yeah so anyhow so um, Where do we start this week?
1: Well, I think we start where we I think we start in Spain Right. Okay. We got two, two stories out of Spain. You know, We have a Spanish story out of Spain and we have, of course, a European story out of Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, all the European, all the leaders of the EU have an at an informal meeting. I'm not quite sure what the difference between a formal and an informal meeting is when heads of state meet. But nonetheless, I'm sure there's some codified difference there. Having our informal meeting. Well, this was, I guess, not just the EU, but the, the European community, political community. Indeed. Uh, which is Indeed. one of these me- I guess it's the outermost concentric circle of how the EU likes to view itself shaping the world, sort of the EU plus its like-minded members.
0: Very much so. So I mean, be, or wannabe
1: know. or wannabe or wannabe members, I guess. Those who will never really make the cut to be in the at the cool kids table, but they're allowed to sit just at the table next to the cool
0: kids. Next to it, exactly. Exactly. And it's yeah. sort of, you know, if you come to a party at Granada, you can actually join the bar for Maybe a couple of like you know a couple of hours. Uh, so yes, the future of uh, strategic autonomy, uh, which is yeah. a term that was concocted uh, when Trump came to power, uh, because the Europeans figured out that the Americans were completely unreliable, uh, has been sort of dormant, kind of dormant during the Biden uh, few years in which. The Europeans thought that they could rely on the US again. We will get to why they just discovered that they cannot yet again. Um, and this had a lot to do with the Pacific Europe geostrategically and the way in which, you know, beyond the European Union institutions itself, uh, Europe had to think about the way in which it positioned itself. So, obviously, the Ukraine uh, situation, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Brought that once again to the very fore. And I think that once again, Europeans thought, uh, you know, kind of thank God uh that this happened during the Biden administration. Had this happened during the Trump administration, we would probably have the Russians marching right now into Berlin or maybe even Paris. Uh so they actually convened now in in, in Granada, in Granada, I would say, in Spain, and they brought Zelensky for the ride to discuss. Uh, essentially, well, he the, shows up at every party. He's the special guest at every every cool kids party. Pretty much, he was last week in Canada, as as you probably have seen, and now he was in in Spain, and uh, nothing has so far come out of that, and I don't really expect anything to come out of that, uh, at least publicly. I think that most of it were expressions of goodwill and sympathy, and 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 tea and cookies. Um, but it is nonetheless. I like tea and cookies.
1: I, I mean, Obviously,
0: I do too. Uh, but unlike it's not nothing, unlike our green minister of agriculture, Demir, who uh, has claimed that uh, he's a green and he had claimed uh, about a year ago that not eating meat would be a strong contribution against the Russian effort in Ukraine. I tend to think that tea and cookies are uh, politically insufficient, much like you know, uh, much like thoughts and prayers. <laughs> Not to mention thoughts and prayers about like teas and cookies. Those are things that have absolutely no place. What if in I'm pos-
1: thinking and praying? What if I'm thinking and praying while eating
0: tea and cookies? That must have some kind of double effect. Actually, we can we could think about that. Um maybe in the next episode, uh, we can yeah. have like that. But I mean, so I think that the point here is that the pile of good intentions into which like a lot of these things get put on and then they get sort of dusted out and put back on display because there is some sort of sudden emergency or sudden sense that something has gone off. Um, Essentially, it's also a way to mark the lack of political initiative or policy initiatives uh, in the intervening years. So anyway, they're now in, in Granada and a lot of the conversation, I think it's going to be, I mean, it's been for the last couple of days. And I think it's coming to an end. Came to an end, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday or today. Uh, the end of this essentially will be, I think, uh, much more willing and dealing in the background as to you know who gets what and what happens. For instance, with situations now, which we'll get to probably in a few minutes. But uh, Fitzo, who just won in Slovakia, and you know people that are kind of. Not supportive of Ukraine and are redrawing a little bit uh, the position of Europe in relation to you know this kind of conflict. Uh, the other story yeah. out. In, sorry, go ahead. I guess. No, I was going to say the um,
1: strategic autonomy is, is is such an interesting or such a perfect example of of sort of um, the lack of the lack of meaning within. The strength of institutions, even when they lack any meaning or substance, because um, yeah, sure. the EU as a as a body, is it, it's such a fact on the ground, right? There's no shaking or moving the EU, uh, even when there's so many open questions about what the EU actually is, what its policies are, both within itself and the EU relation with the world. And it takes so long for the European Union to decide on anything and to move forward with policy. we look at the green deal it's taken or or it's taken years we look at all all the tech regulations taken almost a decade then this idea of strategic
0: autonomy does can anyone even really explain what strategic autonomy if i if i can interrupt you i mean very quickly not only those things which are kind of glacial problems that people see as sort of you know very hidden and we have time but there are things like you know the ukrainian war and as i talk to like most of my contacts most of my contacts in in, um, sorry, I have I have a visitor suddenly here. Uh, most oh, of wonderful. In um, most of my contacts in Brussels, uh, one of the things that is remarkable is that everybody who was really at the center of the thing as a, sort of a decision-making level, like right around the time that the war started, uh, they were telling you six months later that had the Americans not been there pushing, that the, the Europeans would still be completely, completely, completely stopped. I'm trying to, as you can see, I'm trying to woo people away, but it's not really quite working. Um, People want to be part of Euroscopic. Right. People want to be part of Euroscopic. I don't know. There is a bit of a war going there. So, I mean, I think that the point that is important to remember is that uh, it's not really just in sort of very large issues that seem to have very little moving sort of, you know, Parts when you actually look at the day to day, I mean things that are urgent, like an invasion of Russia into European, sort of not EU but European territory, still takes a Europeans like ages to actually resolve and ages to address. Right. And of course, partly that's
1: because you need the the unanimous agreement of all 27 member states for big decisions, especially foreign policy decisions. So it's understandable that things take time, it's understandable that Member states have their own domestic uh, political and policy concerns. And that's actually one of the issues is, does the EU switch from a unanimous system to a qualified majority system? There are pretty decent pros and cons for both of those things. The biggest pro, of course, is that countries like Poland and Hungary can no longer hold the EU hostage uh, for things that they need to move forward on, especially things on rule of law. Uh, And these sort of the basket of so-called democratic values and support for Ukraine resistance to Russia, these kind this sort of stuff. Um, But of course, there is also a danger to moving too quickly and things falling apart if you don't have the consensus uh, and the agreement of most, if not all of your members, you could lead to a breakdown of the system overall. So that's a big sticking point. Just Forget about the policies before, before we even get to the policies, it's, it's, there's, there's glacial movement on how do we decide about the policies. And so I think beyond whatever substance there is to this idea of, of European sovereignty, um, Macron's wonderful idea, um, it's just a more, uh, it's a symbolic example of how glacially things moves far too slowly for keeping up with world events. I mean, this idea of sovereignty came, as you said, during the during the Trump era. Also during this era of so-called another Macron statement, the brain dead NATO that he when he gave that famous interview to the Economist. And okay, so we've thrown this term out into the into the world. We now have this this idea of sovereignty. No one's really quite defined it. While we're busy trying to figure out what this is, how it's defined, what it would look like, what do it would mean, world events are going at their own pace. Trump is out. Biden is in. War, the Russians are in Ukraine. Uh, now we're getting to the end of Biden's first term. Trump might be back. Um, so the world is moving both forward. I, I would, I guess, it's like slinky policies. It's moving both simultaneously forward and in sort of a cyclical fashion. So it's kind of like a slinky, uh, the way world, the, the kind of human it's events nice forward. move forward. Yeah. But uh, so, so the world is moving like a slinky. But these ideas, these policy initiatives, are moving just in a circle if they're moving at all. Uh, and you end up with just these empty slogans that no one can quite understand what they mean. And even once you've decided what they mean, it doesn't matter anymore because the thing that they were meant to address has already changed.
0: Oh, yeah, and yeah. I think
1: that's a fundamental—that's a fundamental problem with the European Union, a fundamental challenge. Which, of course, is not lost on European Union officials themselves, and is what we're seeing yeah, right. in Granada right now. Uh, happening within this informal meeting, not only with European Union leaders, but as we said, the European political community, which involves like North African countries. I think even Canada is part of the European political community. It's kind of like Eurovision for politics.
0: I mean, it is in a way, it's Eurovision for politics. I think that one needs to remember that you know democracy is inherently unstable. Uh, people like right. to say that you know ty- tyrannies are unstable. Tyrannies are not unstable. I mean, tyrannies actually can last very, very long periods of time. I mean, take a look at Russia, yep. take a look at Belarus, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that what that means is also that strategic autonomy in a place where you actually have so many actors pulling in so many different directions. Uh, essentially, it's a non-starter. You can have sovereignty for a unit, but you cannot really have a sovereignty of essentially, I mean, this kind of very, you know, uh, uneven grouping. Uh, the problem is, th- the added problem here is that you have a lot of actors that have very, very unclear loyalties. So, I mean, somebody like Fitzo now in Slovakia, or somebody like Meloni, who has had so many years of closer relations with Russia. Somebody like Le Pen, who has actually taken money from Russia, or, you know, people like... Mm-hmm the right wing of of, of Germany that has such a strange relation with the Trumpian project. So, I mean, I think that all of these things actually mean that the question of autonomy in Europe is actually a very, very elusive one. We should move to the next story in Spain, which is that after the, uh, you know, uh, well... um, Foretold uh, failure of the right, uh, the center-right with the far-right in coalition to actually form a government in Spain. Now uh, the king uh, has asked the sitting, the sitting transitional president, who happens to be also the former president, so the same guy doing the same job, and there are two different titles to actually form government, and he has pinned uh, the very possibility, or it has been pinned for him actually, on uh, an amnesty. For all the Catalonians that had actually gone um, crazy a couple of years ago, declared more or less uh, uh, an independent, um, you know, a vote for independence, uh, had mm. called people to the ballots and had produced sort of, I think, one of the most violent episodes that we've seen politically, that we've seen in Spain many, many years. So these people, many of whom are in jail, many of whom are now in exile, um, Pugimón famously in, in Brussels, and... Uh, are demanding, essentially, an amnesty to return, which is, is, I think it might be one of the most spectacular political victories and upsets uh, and plot twists uh, that I have ever seen, most certainly in European politics. Uh, but altogether, it's just remarkable to see these people that were pariahs until only a couple of days ago, of Fassian essentially being at the very top uh, of the political pyramid. Speaking my- of cyclical, right?
1: Speaking of <laughs> cyclical, this is like this is like cyclical pure here. Yeah, yeah. You know these yeah, completely absolutely. persona. I mean, there was you know the the, the manhunt that happened in right. the European Union uh, years ago, and now the man hunted the fugitive is now it's the king.
0: Down, yeah, it's hunting. Like I mean, the man hunted is coming back to hunt. <laughs> and, uh, not only Spain, because the fact is that this guy now is quite literally the king maker uh, or the present maker in spain uh in fact i would say that the king has called on sanchez to form government only because the true king maker who is uh Pugimon. but i think that the most important thing is that they actually now have a massive hand on essentially reshaping european politics because obviously you know, now they are in a position to actually define sort of a lot of a lot of policy that will ultimately also impact uh, the European Union, including. Yeah. Just- would
1: you say it's a fair if if I, if I were to boil down this insane these insane developments into maybe maybe an oversimplification, but would you say it's fair to say Spain is faced essentially with two bad choices? One is to go with uh, the socialists. But that would be that would come at the potential medium to longer term instability if it if it breeds new life into the separatist movement, or the center
0: right with the help of the far right. Look, I am of the uh, somewhat unpopular opinion that the failure of Catalonia is the failure of absolute boorish stupidity. Uh, I don't know if those words need each other, perhaps it's a redundance, but (laughs) borish, let me just, imbecility really, uh, consistent, long-term and and, and committed uh, of uh, the different governments that have actually gone through Madrid, particularly the center right, which essentially has uh, what I think it's a very Spanish disposition of it is what we say. Uh, It comes to all empires, I think. You see this a bit in Russia now, you see the Mm. American What we say is law, I mean, there was this way to use the statement, the, the term, um, uh, what is it, uh, rule of law, in which rule of law for Spain during the Catalonian crisis meant whatever Madrid says is law. Whereas, as a matter of fact, I mean, rule of law means that the law has preeminence over what like the Madrid powers say at any given time. So there was right. a lot of low beating, there was a lot of money that was taken from Catalonia, not given back. Catalonia, given, keep in mind, that was actually one of the main political and economic motors of Spain. Uh, so they actually brought it on themselves, and they actually trumped up the charges against many of these people, sent them running, jailed people for a long period of time with no sentence, no fixed sentence. So in some sense, I think that this is rather, from my point of view, and I am an anti-nationalist that does not have three seconds for national claims, uh, but I think that this really is poetic justice, uh, and you it, know, it is. Yeah, no but maybe, maybe
1: at the cost of all of us.
0: Well, to some degree, this will create a little stability, but it might also force union to finally push into negotiating with the autonomous regions. Uh, I think that Mm. the point here, the main point to be made is that, uh, you know, there are aspirations that need to be about to and that, or at least need to be listened to. So I think that this is really, this really is poetic justice. And I don't think that it could have happened to more deserving people than sort of the center right flirting with essentially neo fascists. I mean, I think that they deserved every single bit of it. If you, if you ask me. Anyhow, right. well, we move to so Germany. That, it means... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. We, we can
1: always move to Germany. There's always something to talk about in Germany. It usually puts people to sleep, but uh, we can try to, uh, we could try to find a different tact.
0: Oh, but this week we have actually, I mean, we have actually a far right politician that uh, apparently uh, was. Attacked with a syringe and perhaps poisoned. So, so says it, the uh, AFD. I mean,
1: <laughs> it's an insane story. I mean, the head ahead. of the, uh, the, you know, the national head of the AFD, the alternative for Germany, Tina Tupala, uh, uh, apparently collapses Krupula, or Krupula, something happens. Which it,
0: Krupula, but it's so, actually Krupala.
1: Yeah, well. Something happens something something happens to him at at a campaign event in in Bavaria which is having elections this weekend rushed to the hospital uh rumors of him being attacked or poisoned or stabbed with a needle or no one really knows he went to the hospital um his blood work came back negative for any kind of poison uh the AFD is running with all kinds of rumors and conjecture heavily criticized by the in, uh, interior minister of Bavaria, uh, who's who's uh, on the center right himself, he's he's uh, conservative himself, but uh, uh, criticizing his his friends to the further right, uh, saying that they're being acting completely irresponsible uh, in sort of fanning rumors and gossip about what may or may not have happened. Still, no one knows. Uh, the party leader, you know, Tino, is now gone. He's out of the hospital. We still don't know what's happening. The police are investigating. Police are saying nothing. The AFD is not really to be trusted. The media is just going on crumbs that it can find. No one really knows what happens, but you know, maybe he just had a bout of flu. I mean, we have no idea. Nonetheless, it's coming on the heels of obviously a surging far-right, not so much in Bavaria. They have their own sort of alternative, alternative far-right politics to deal with, but not the AFD in name. Um, but it's coming at, you know, at a time of of surging popularity, at least in the polls for the AFD and on top of two heavily watched state elections uh, in Germany. So it's just one more little twist as we you know, round the final bend to elections on so, Sunday.
0: I wanted to ask you exactly, I wanted to ask you about that, but first I just wanted to remind you that uh, only a couple of weeks ago, uh, the co-chair of the party, uh, Ms. Alice Weidel, who uh, is a far-right... Um, lesbian with children who doesn't live in Germany but in Switzerland. I love it because, I mean, you know, this is somebody that sort of thoroughly has enjoyed the fruits of progressive politics, right? I mean, in her personal life, it's essentially mm-hmm. a song. It's an ode to progressive politics and the possibilities of progressive politics. Uh, nonetheless, um, she was supposedly taken into, uh shelter. She was given shelter by the Swiss police because Uh, There was supposedly a threat on her life. And then she gave apparently some sort of party speech, stomping speech, which she did online because the FDA claimed that she was still in danger. Uh, Turns out that somebody spotted her that very day in Mallorca, uh, hanging out with her wife and the kids. So, um, you know, they are really not to be trusted. And there is something very, very strange about this sort of ongoing... Uh, made-up shit, really. I mean, just, you know, made-up stuff going, which makes, obviously, the the story of of Krupala um, rather curious and unlikely. But I think that what you do have here, which I think that it's making uh, all Germans uh, of other party extractions very nervous, is that there is this smell of, let's say, uh, a Reichstag fire kind of thing.
1: Uh, I don't think we're quite there yet, but yeah, there are you know this kind of um, yeah this doublespeak that's going on.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so what I mean to say by that, I mean before we get the lawsuit, we should actually clarify that is that there is sort of a present, a present, and clear and present danger that the far right is now sort of pointing that comes down to the personal safety of its politicians. And it's actually mobilizing, you know, the security, the security of the state, insofar as they can, like involving the police and their investigations, and they're sort of under the under the thought or under the, the accusation, implicit, obviously, because nobody's saying that if they's not saying exactly who these people are that are attacking them, uh, of being essentially, you know, um, in harm's way, political harm's way. Right. I mean, fortunately,
1: they don't have, unlike the actual Reichstag fire. Uh, they don't have the power to then, um, you know, uh, mete out consequences like banning all other democratically elected parties and, right. and taking over the state. Not yet, anyway. But Not that is anyway. what is uh, that is what is making people watch extra closely these state elections. Not specifically so much Bavaria and Hessen, where well, Hessen is a different story. But it's um, generally this upcoming cycle of state elections. Can you can you talk uh, a bit that about that,
0: what what is about to happen?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, so as we know, Germany is a federal system. It's decentralized. So as 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 difficult as it is to get excited about state elections, sometimes for states that people outside of Germany have never even heard of, they do actually exercise a lot of power at the federal level given the decentralized uh, makeup and structure of Germany. So these states are, so when there is a state election, Germany looks at them very closely. They're seen as a a bellwether for how people feel about whatever government is in power at the federal level. In Bavaria and Hessen, we have state elections happening uh, on Sunday. Uh, Today is Saturday as we're recording this. Um, Bavaria we can, and both states we can pretty much, we pretty much know barring some major surprise what's gonna happen. Of course, the um, the uh, Christian Social Union in Bavaria has had a lock on that state essentially since the end of World War II. For a long time, they were, for, for essentially, they were able to rule for a very, very long time up until just uh, the last election cycle uh, on their own, which is unheard of in Germany to not need a coalition partner. But even the great and mighty CSU. Um, have suffered from this breakup of big tent parties and this shift we're seeing in politics right now, and did have to go into coalition with the Free Voters, which is a conservative populist party uh, that is uh, flirts with some far right ideas. Of course, we discussed in the previous episode uh, a bit of a, a, an anti a so called anti semitism scandal with uh, the leader of the free the Free Voters, the Freie Wähler in Bavaria. Anyway, those two parties look to be on track to continue their coalition after elections. And it's not such a surprise to say that the the Social Democrats, the SPD, the Greens uh, who are in power at the federal level, it's not such a surprise that they're so weak in Bavaria outside of some very small urban centers like the center of Munich. Hessen, we have a center right party and the CDU and the greens in power there and they look like they're going to continue their coalition as well so both states continuing their coalitions so the actual outcome is not going to be so such a surprise but the question is especially in hessen which is in the western which is in west germany or western germany I should a very say. A
0: very, rich, so a very rich state a very
1: both of these states are very rich uh, and the, so the two points about hessen is one by western german standards it has Pretty strong far right uh, affiliations. The AfD could do very well. Could even it won't? It probably won't come anywhere close to having any chance of uh, uh, being needing needing to be thwarted from government. Uh, but they could do very well. They could even do better than the Social Democrats, uh, the SPD. Uh, of course, a formerly big ten party and in power, you know, running Germany right now so under Olaf Scholz.
0: Worth worth saying that is a trend that is actually has been seen across Germany uh, right. especially in the east right i mean them climbing- right. so we've seen east.
1: this we've seen this in the east in the eastern states where the AfD really are going to give other parties a run for their money when they have their state elections next year and are presenting some big challenges to how do you protect democracy so to speak or democratic electoral politics and keep the AfD out if the AfD wins a democratically a, a democratic election Hessen is sort of an outlier where there is strong AFD uh, support not as strong as in the east and have had some serious scandals of police and law enforcement and security personnel being tied to the far to the far right not necessarily AFD but other elements in the far right so there's been some major scandals over the last couple of years in Hessen uh, between, uh, you know, data leaks, to the far right um, of human rights, of human rights uh, uh, organizations and leader, activist leaders, you know, protecting minorities and these kinds of things. So how well the AFD will do in Hessen. And then for the SPD, their top woman running to be, you know, to unseat the CDU is the interior minister at the federal level, uh, Nancy Faser So the question is, if she performs as poorly as the polls are showing, does she have a career and a future uh, at the federal level like she would like to have? It's no surprise, I don't think, that she has left and right in the last few weeks been banning, as her as she's allowed to as the interior minister for the country, she's been banning left and right various far-right parties and groupings and extremist groups, which is, you know, she has the right to do it and she probably has a good sound legal case to do it, uh, but it's clearly part of a, a, a politics Uh, in her campaign to show that she is strong against extremist movements, uh, making a statement in her claim for power in Hessen. But that doesn't seem to be good enough. So the question is, how do these things all sort out? How poorly will the Social Democrats do? How much better will the AFD do? Uh, So even if the ultimately the coalition itself doesn't change between the CDU and the Greens, exactly where parties fall could have some serious ramifications for the kinds of people uh, running things in Germany going forward.
0: It's um, something we will obviously get to um, track for the next couple of days and especially after the yeah. election that it plays out. Uh, okay, so just uh, a quick jump across the Atlantic. Uh, it seems that the congressional chaos in the US has completely sort of put out of joint, uh, European politics as well. Yeah,
1: it's bonkers. I mean, US politics maybe has always been bonkers since it's, you know, since the country founding and it's just beginning more and more bonker-ish as the years go by, as polarization, as as money uh, just continues to corrupt uh, the heart of American democracy. Um, but it's really what happened. What's happened in this past week is truly a bizarre spectacle. If we back up a few days or back up a week, I guess by now, um, you know, after the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, a Republican, which by, the, by standards these days is considered almost a moderate Republican, even though there's very little moderate about him, uh, but he's just slightly less crazy than the really crazy Republicans um, further to his right. Uh, after he failed to get those people further to his right to agree to a budget deal, he then had to swing the other way and work with Democrats uh, to avoid a government shutdown. He then got slammed by those further right Republicans uh, for doing a deal with Democrats and they vowed to unseat him to get rid of him. Remember, Kevin McCarthy needed to go a historic number of rounds of voting earlier this year just to become Speaker of the House. Uh, These... Part of these extreme right Republicans, led by like Matt Gates from Florida, promised to unseat him. That's what he did, and that's what they ultimately did. But how did they do it with Democratic support? <laughs> so people like Matt Gates, accusing Kevin McCarthy of acquiescing to the Democrats to avoid a shutdown, then allies himself or gets allied with Democrats themselves for getting rid of Democrats, because uh, for getting rid of Kevin McCarthy, because almost no Republican actually voted to unseat Kevin McCarthy from the speakership position. It was a handful of extremist Republicans and then most of the Democrats who voted to have this unprecedented thing happen, which is not to replace the Speaker of the House, but just to leave the Speaker position vacant. And, so there yeah. was no Speaker of the House, there's no one leading Congress, which means no legislation legislation can happen. Exactly. They've paralyzed themselves indefinitely because it's unclear when there will be a speaker, which means we're almost surely going to have a shutdown in November because the agreement that was passed last week is a stopgap measure to go 45 days. And tied to that is more funding into the new year for support, both economic and security assistance for Ukraine. And these things will probably probably not happen which brings us back to europe and as you said america being a reliable partner for the european union and a leader in supporting ukraine and if the united states starts uh, waffling in its support for ukraine you can very easily see support on the european side which is cracking in its own ways yeah uh for support for ukraine especially as this war drags on with no end in sight with no clarity if ukraine no matter how many weapons it gets can really uh, you know, move the goalposts that much.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the one of the most remarkable things about this entire operation in, in, in Europe for me was that um, it seems that Europeans just never bloody learn. I mean, the US, this is not new, right? I mean, we have seen the US essentially sink into this complete political madness, as you pointed out, for, for quite a while. This one was particularly strange. I think that... My reading is that the Democrats were actually very, very happy to see the Republican Party implode uh, yeah. and show their complete madness. So they just went along with it. Uh, it's kind of a disgrace, right? There used to be the line, first the party. I mean, the Germans like this one. It's first the par- f- first the country, then the party. Um, there is no such thing. I mean, it's the party at any cost. And now we have like group skills. But I think that, you know, As we move forward and we're looking at next year's election, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that is happening under Biden and under a democratic sort of somewhat allied or or sympathetic administration. Uh, And Europeans are caught once again with their pants down, not knowing how to operate. And I think that this brings us back a bit to the question of strategic autonomy, that autonomy that they were discussing this week in in Granada. It's not that, you know, the problem is not simply that the U.S. is unreliable at, at, at times of sort of radicalized governments like the Trump, Trump government with strange allegiances to Russia. I mean, it's never reliable. You're always kind of toying the line and trying to figure out. Um, and nonetheless, I mean, you know, you talk to Brussels and it's still kind of business as usual. Our friends, the Americans um to me it was absolutely remarkable what happened this week and i think that it's just the beginning of it because if this thing goes farther and there is no speaker of the house and the house remains in a state of essentially paralysis for the next two months coming into the winter mind uh the ukrainian issue will become very 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 big one very big one yeah i
1: mean i think you you talk about how the europeans can't don't learn their lesson. That is true, I think, especially Western Europe, Germany for, for, sure, for sure, but especially Western Europe suffer from Stockholm syndrome. I mean, there there is such a, an allegiance and a love for the United States given still, still in 2023, 80, 90 years later, for the for the World War II experience and then the post-war experience, the Marshall Plan, the Bulwark against the Soviets, etc. cetera, and then post Cold War, you bring the Eastern Europeans on, NATO expansion, U.S. support for spreading—you know—market-driven, mar- mar- market-driven democracy. I guess we can call it into the East. Um, you have a great love, a deep, deep, unshakable love for the United States as an idea, mm-hmm. as an as an aspirational idea that the U.S., even on its best days, doesn't actually oh. get anywhere close to realizing, it, right. that you have this amnesia in Europe that maybe not the French, but certainly elsewhere in Europe um, that the, 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 the U S is the, is this indispensable nation, this benevolent hegemon, this, you know, but um, it's a very paternalistic relationship. Um, and I, I, I'm forgetting who said it uh, once, but the U S is treated like, a multilateral organization. It's not a multilateral organization. It is a country with its own interests and its own massive uh, delinquencies. Yes. Um and a, a military hegemon and an empire in its own right. And the European Union, you're right, it doesn't learn its lessons, but why it doesn't learn its lessons is cuz it just keeps forgetting this. And um and that weren't and and, uh, and and this just paralyzes the EU from from wanting to stray too far from it's it's big brother, or I, I said paternalistic. It's father, um, uncle. It's father, uncle Sam. If I can mix my familial metaphors.
0: That's yeah. That's those are those are um, those are very interesting mixed familial metaphors. Actually, I mean, I think I think this is true. I think that nonetheless, the point that we made earlier today is actually one that still sticks, which is that uh, there are a lot of mixed loyalties. So whereas you mm. still have this sort of American, you know, uh, this this sense of yeah i mean just <clears throat> loyalty to an american idea of sort of you know salvation and, and so on and so forth there is also uh loyalty to an american idea of m- sort of radical market economies there are many people around especially in the eastern side that would like nothing more than a return to reaganite regonomics uh obviously completely mm. forgetting what came after i mean forgetting the the, the hangover of economics and then you also have a lot of people around the blog that are uh, quite enamored with the craziest sort of, you know, American evangelical Tea Party, truth to power kind of thing. Uh, so I think that what I see as being quite interesting is that there is an overlap of this sort of uh, disaggregation of European political wills, I mean, which was sort of the the, the consensus uh, which lasted many, many years, uh, which maps over sort of the the American the American break uh, break kind of thing. Uh, anyhow, so I think that this yeah. is almost almost all we have time for. But I think we should still talk for two minutes or three about what's uh, what you're going to be looking at for the coming week.
1: Yeah, um, migration, right? One of the things that did or did not or kind of sort of not come out of the Granada meeting was this migration pact. As I was writing the preview for our episode, I said, the migration pact, you know, Habemus migration pact, that they finally had agreement on it. And even, and this is a perfect example of just the, e, the glacial movement of the EU. Even once there was agreement, there was not agreement. Um, there was this big announcement that this this momentous, you know, landmark migration deal finally happened. And and after that, the Poles and the Hungarians said, no, we haven't agreed to anything. <laughs> yeah. So that's still going to be bubbling next week. I mean more than just next week but we're really in the in the center of it now um because migration is a major uh political issue domestic political issue in various eu countries i mean it always has been but there are elections happening now uh and a major issue in in real human terms just because there are so many migrants both legal and not uh, all kinds of different different kinds of migrants uh, coming into europe right now Uh, And you still have this Tunisia deal, which is also very funny. That's another thing I'm watching. (laughs) Surprise, surprise! The 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 Tunisia deal. Well, the EU is looking for its money back, basically. (laughs) So those are kind of the things that I'm gonna be I'm gonna be uh, keeping an eye on. It's
0: actually really very interesting because the sort of the the jump of the uh, Hungarians and the Poles shows, I think, a break, a very interesting break with the Italian far right, which is now in government. Uh, they had been sort of pretty close to each other for quite a while and that's I think one of the blocks that could emerge in next year's election as a far right very powerful block in Europe but this actually shows that the Poles and the Hungarians were not completely happy with that so my um, surprise surprise yes indeed <laughs> uh, so my um, yeah my story for next week is actually as you announced in our menu for this week are bed bugs uh paris is a A massive epidemic, apparently, of bed bugs. Some claim that it's actually over. uh, It's there is an overreaction and a bit of massive psychosis. But nonetheless, I think that once this kind of stories begin to spread, uh, they do tend to have an impact. Obviously, on uh, tourist industry and you know every other political and economic indicator for the city. Uh, Paris is a very very big hub. Of movement for Europe, so this could actually mean that we're going to be seeing a lot more of this for the next couple of months. In fact, already a pretty hard hit European economy, if there were a serious, serious hit to the tourist industry, uh, could be massive, could really be massive, so this very little bug could actually really wreak havoc on a lot of European economics and a lot of European politics uh, going forward. Um, Yeah, it's crazy how... I mean, uh, we we know about this for
1: New York City. New York City is is bedbugs. This is not a story. But for Paris, uh, yeah, it's interesting the economic fallout from something that can be seen as very silly. Um, Yes.
0: But yeah, we'll we'll, we'll definitely be watching that. I think I would want to emphasize in that case that we're coming out of a pandemic where we had shutdowns. We are in the middle of a war. There is essentially some form or other of inflationary sort of blow up across the across the region. Uh, we have actually a massive influx of migration. Uh, if to this you add really a serious hit to tourism and all that comes out of tourism, we could be something. We could be looking at something that, as it spreads through Europe, could become actually very serious. But Let's take a look over the next week and see what we uh, we can say next week. It's been lovely forward seeing to it. you. We've done 46 minutes, 17 seconds. I think that this is perfectly uh, acceptable for those of us that uh, have other things to do. Like eat cheese. I'm coming over for cheese as soon as I can. And you are you are uh, welcome anytime before we eat it. I Wonderful. will start another batch soon. So I'll Good. Uh, see you next week. See you next week. Take care.